morning, everybody. How are you doing out there? Good? I uh, hope you enjoyed that little clip from the movie Enchanted. It uh, kind of drives home the point that Jesus, I think, is making in our passage today. Uh, you know, basically, Jesus says, uh, you can know me by what I do and what I say. Right? What a thought, that a mere human could actually know God. The agnostic asserts that this is totally impossible. The uh, atheist sits, insists the very idea is arrogant and a purely, purely metaphysical enterprise. But one of the reasons that Jesus came was to reveal God, God's character, God's nature, clearly and perfectly to us. Our passage today kind of prompts us to consider a couple of roadblocks to knowing God and also a, about three or four resources that we can uh, use to help us know him and if we do know him, know him better. So let me pray for our time in God's Word to be fruitful, and we'll dig in. God, thank you for your time today to be with us. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your sacrifice for us. Thank you for your care and tender, loving affection for us uh, all the days of the week. Uh, we often take it for granted. But today we want to focus in on you and focus on what you are saying to us, and may we be affected by this, maybe be changed by this as we hear your words. Uh, pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, Francis Bacon said something in the 16th century. Uh, he said this, knowledge is power. If that were true, then we happen to be living in the most powerful generation in history. Our store of knowledge is growing at an ever-increasing rate, and its accessibility is increasingly instantaneous. You can giggle, you can giggle, you can Google, you can giggle about Google too, but you can Google and find just about anything that you want to find uh, that's, that you might want to know. And sadly, you can find a whole bunch of stuff that you probably shouldn't try to find that's not worth knowing. It's all there at your fingertips. Now, let's suppose you went to a birthday party and you give a boy or girl a birthday card that when you open it, plays a song, happy birthday or whatever, Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> The person who receives the card will surely thank you for it, uh, but later on will probably, unless it's uh, your grandchild or whatever, probably toss it in the trash. Here's what's interesting. When they throw that card into the trash, they have thrown away more computer power than existed on the earth prior to 1950. It's staggering what we have learned since then until now. You could have placed, for example, all 700,000 parchments in the library in Alexandria, Egypt, the largest library in the ancient world, you could have put all of that on a single silicon chip. Someone estimated that if you took all of the acquired knowledge from the beginning of history until the year 1845, and you represented that knowledge by one inch, then all of the accumulated knowledge in the next century from, 19, from 1845 to 1945 would be three inches. However, the accumulated knowledge during just the next 30 years, from 1945 to 1975, would equal the height of the Washington Monument. What we have accumulated since then is anybody's guess. But our store of knowledge is increasing exponentially. But that's just information. Charles Spurgeon once asked the question, about what is the greatest science of all in his mind, which is spiritual knowledge. 
knowing God. So I'm going to talk to you a bit about that today. Knowing God, how can we know him? And if we do, how can we know him better? I got a picture on the screen of a Newsweek uh, article, a magazine from uh, May 2001. The article, or the uh, paper, is basically focused its attention on our brains and spirituality. One of the articles written by a guy named Michael Persinger of Laurentian University in Canada has some ideas on this. Not saying they're good ideas, not saying they're accurate ideas. As I mentioned, you can pull up Google, a lot of, get a lot of information, some good, some not. Anyway, Persinger suspects that religious experiences that you and I might have are really evoked by electrical storms in our temporal lobes. And that such storms can be triggered by such things as anxiety, personal crises, lack of oxygen, low blood sugar, right? simple fatigue even, suggesting that those are what the factors are that trigger our people around us to find God. You know, so Persinger speculates that our left temporal lobe maintains our sense of self. And when that region gets stimulated, but the right lobe stays quiet, the left interprets this as some presence that has departed the scene. <laughs> Basically, what he's saying is this. This finding God is stuff, this religion stuff, it's all in your mind. It's all imaginary. It's all fake. Just your temporal lobe firing. I've always loved the story of the teacher who told her class to draw a picture of their favorite thing. So all the kids got their pencils, their coloring stuff, and they started, they started drawing. And there's one particular girl that's just really going at it. So the teacher's walking around the classroom, and she's just seeing this woman, this, girl, this little girl being super intense. So she, <coughs> she walks up and says, Susie, what are, you, what are you drawing? Without looking up, Susie says, I'm drawing God. Teacher says, Susie, nobody knows what God looks like. And without beating a second, she just said, they will in a minute. <laughs> that could have been Jesus' line. Because people did not know God or understand God in any kind of a manifested form. No one has seen God, Scripture says, at any time. But the only begotten Son of God has revealed him. So we're in John 14. We're studying a conversation that's taking place in the upper room. It's Jesus teaching, comforting, encouraging, trying to hold his disciples together before he leaves the scene. He's going to be killed the next day. And at this final meal together, they have already heard enough to cause them a lot of fear, a lot of concern, a lot of worry. Jesus says he's going to be going. He says he's going to be killed. Jesus says that one of the disciples that were sitting at the table are going to, is going to betray him. He told Peter that Peter would deny him. And so no surprise, they're, they're all agitated. They've been out of shape. And in the conversation we talked about last week, we have Thomas saying, look, we, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus' response to that was, oh, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we're continuing that conversation. And this time we see that Jesus and Philip, another disciple, have a little exchange. Let's begin in verse 7. Jesus speaking. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. 
From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So, two things in our text that we just read. One uh, talks about some roadblocks to knowing God. There's a couple of them. And I think that the, uh, the disciples are experiencing both. And number two are some resources for knowing God better. So let's start with the two roadblocks. The first one is this, an inaccurate comprehension. What do I mean by that? Let me draw your attention back to verse 7. Here's the first roadblock. The disciples had not fully connected the dots of exactly who Jesus is. In verse 7, Jesus uses the word known. The words know or known show up four times in verses 7 and 9. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Jesus said to him, How have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Why, why is that important? Well, I'll tell you who thinks it is important. That's John, the gospel writer. He uses the word know, or some version of it, 141 times in this gospel. It's one of his favorite words. Another one of his favorite words, of course, is believe. He wants you to believe in God. He wants you to believe in Jesus. And he uses that 98 times. So John, if you kind of take it apart and look at the big picture, he wants you to believe in God, but he also wants you to know God. So without going through all of the language stuff, let's just say that John uses the word know four different ways in his gospel. First, sometimes he uses it just to mean knowing a fact. Knowing a fact. Here's the fact. Okay, I know it. Two plus two is four. Got it. Second, he also uses it to talk about understanding a truth behind the fact, where the fact is leading. Third, he uses the term to know in reference to just interpersonal relationships, knowing a person relationally. And fourth, he uses it to mean having a deeper, fuller comprehension of that person's identity. And that fourth way is how Jesus Christ is using that term here. You should have known me, Philip, if you had known me, if you'd really known me. Now, he's not saying he and Philip are not acquainted. He's not saying, oh, hi, Philip, this is Jesus. No, no. They've been hanging around with Jesus for three and a half years. Probably nobody on earth knows Jesus better than these disciples. But they've been around him, but they're also learning who he is. And I don't think they have fully yet comprehended the, the fullness of his identity. They're still computing all of that in their little brains. I don't know if it's left or right. I'll talk to Mr. Laurentian University guy. Do you call the Sea of Galilee? When Jesus calmed the storm, they all thought they were going to die out there on the sea. The disciples asked each other the question, who can this be that even the wind and the waves obey him? None of them have an answer to that question. But that was their question, who, who can this be? And they were in a three-and-a-half-year schooling process of discovering who this can be. Until Peter, Peter finally says, 
oh, I think I get something on this. Matthew chapter 16. Remember, Jesus is talking. And he says, who do people say that I am? And some people go Yoda or whatever. I mean, there's a bunch of crazy answers. Then he's, Jesus says, who do you, who do you disciples say that I am? And Peter pipes up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he gets a hand clap from that from Jesus. Well, Jesus was known to be able to work miracles. The disciples knew that he could speak really well. They believed that he was the Messiah, but I don't think they quite grasped the deity part because of their background and their upbringing. The idea that God could actually come down and reside in a human body was a little bit foreign to them. Now, they're going to come to that understanding in time as it marches on. Jesus is going to die the next day. Three days later, he'll be resurrected. Later on, he appears to Thomas, the doubter, when to stick his hands in the wounds. And Thomas may be the guy, may be the first guy that connects the dots. He says this to Jesus. Listen to what he says. My Lord and my God. Oh, all of a sudden, I get it. I get who he is. One of our roadblocks in fully knowing who God is, knowing Jesus, is all the baggage that we bring into the relationship. The baggage of our upbringing, our culture, our customs, our worldviews, all of that forms a lens which can get awfully cloudy as we're thinking about viewing God. That's why some people will say things like, well, I've always pictured God this way, or I imagine God is like this. They're looking at that God through that lens of their background. Here's the point. Who do you think God is and who he really is may not necessarily be the same thing. Your perception and reality could be miles apart, and it can be true for any of us. So that's why it's important to understand who he is by who he actually reveals himself to be. He's been doing that now three and a half years with these men, and obviously they've picked up on a lot of it, but not necessarily all of it. So that's number one, some inaccurate comprehension. The second roadblock we find here in verse 8. Philip says, just show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Well, yeah, that'd be sufficient for anybody, right? But if God did that, we'd all die, according to the Old Testament. You, you kind of understand where maybe Philip was coming from? Jesus, you keep telling us you're going. You're going to be leaving us. You keep telling us you're going to go back to where you came from. You keep talking about you and the Father being one. You keep bringing the Father up. Looks like we're going to be losing you very soon. So maybe if you just show us the Father... We'll be happy. How about if the Father came down here and replaced you, hung out with us? Maybe that'd be all we need, to be enough. It's almost as, Philip, as if Philip is thinking, well, you're leaving, and since you're here carrying out the Father's plan, maybe if he were to show up, he might bring some things to the table that, you know, we're going to miss when you go. So it's something to understand about Philip. We've, we've met him before in the Gospel of John. Remember when Jesus was... Uh, preaching, and the multitudes came out in Galilee, uh, thousands and thousands of them, and Jesus did this miracle to feed the, the multitude. But before he fed them, remember what he did? Before he fed them, when all these people were gathered around, the Bible says that Jesus turned to Philip and asked him a question. The question was, hey, Philip, come here. Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? And the Bible tells us that Jesus asked him that question with a purpose. And the purpose was to test him. Philip took the test and bombed the test. Philip, where do we buy bread that we can feed all these people? 
immediately. Philip's little accountant brain goes into, goes into, goes into action. And he comes back with this. Okay, I figured it out. Got the answer. We're going to need the moral equivalent of U.S. dollars, 20,000 bucks, or 200 dinar, eight months' wages in those days for a common person's labor. But Jesus, that won't even cover the cost for all this. I figured it out, though. I got the, I got the answer. I got, I, got the, I got the formula. But we don't even have all the dollars. And even if we did have all the dollars, there's not enough places around us that we could get the bread from. He answers a question, interestingly enough, that Jesus didn't actually ask. Jesus did not ask how much it would cost. His question was, where are we going to get it? Philip, the answer to the question that Jesus asked is actually staring you in the face. Jesus himself is the answer to the question Jesus asked you, and you don't see it because you've not yet fully grasped who Jesus really is. He's not just the Messiah. He's not just the Son of God. He's God. Interestingly enough, when Jesus declared him the God that his father, or the, the religious leaders understood that he was actually pro- proclaiming deity. It's funny that some of the disciples didn't get that. Well, see Jesus make this same point himself in this passage, and still Philip hasn't quite figured it out. I suspect none of the disciples have. So to combat these roadblocks, here's some resources that pop up in this passage for knowing God and knowing Him better. Here's the first one. Being in His presence. Being in His presence. We see this popped up in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? And listen to the next statement Jesus utters, where Jesus actually kind of proclaims His deity in that unmistakably clear manner again. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, these words of Christ, besides being a statement, I think, of his deity, I think they're tinged with maybe a little sadness. I've been around you so long. We've shared so many intimate moments together over the last few years, and still you you do not know who I am. It brings up an interesting point. It's possible to be around someone and not really know fully who they are. I've had married couples tell me this. We've been married for these many years, and it's like, I feel like I really didn't know this person until just now, after all these years. I heard a story about a pastor whose family was given tickets to go to the 1996 World's two, two games in the World Series between the Braves and the Yankees back in 96. Uh, a fellow who used to attend this guy's church became a pitcher for the Yankees. So the family even got to ride on the Yankee team bus to and from the hotel to the, to the field. So uh, one of the games, the Yankees actually won. They're driving back to the game. Uh, the family's on the bus, the kid's sitting there, and uh, somebody comes up and sits down beside him. It was a coach of the Yankees by the name of Reggie Jackson, Mr. October. The boy had zero clue who this guy was. Reggie Jackson says, hey, I'm Reggie Jackson from California. Still have no clue. See, it's possible to be around somebody and not even really know who they are. But if you have an inquisitive mind, you might come to know that person. Same with God. Have an open mind, an inquisitive mind. You can come to know him, come to know him better. And the disciples, I think, are going through that process. I mean, Thomas is eventually going to utter, my Lord and my God. He finally discovers who he is. But if you're an unbeliever today, let me just 
challenge you to spend a little bit of time investigating the evidence for faith in Christ. So it becomes maybe something you're interested in, and you might, you might even dare to actually seek God. But if you do, here's the, here's the Bible promise. If you seek the Lord with all your heart, you'll find him. See, God's not in hiding. He's, he's in the process of wanting to reveal himself to people. And if you are seeking him, it says you will be found by him. But if you're a believer, try this. Start evaluating your time. Not so much in what you're doing for God, but in the time that you actually spend with him. See, sometimes we make the mistake of, I'm just so busy working for God. You can spend all your time work, 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 working for God. You can be a pastor of a church and not even really know him. The church at Ephesus had this incredibly wonderful thing going on, but also kind of a problem developed. Jesus actually writes that church a letter in the early chapters of Revelation, and he says this, I know you work hard. You labor like dogs, right? But I've got something against you. You've left your first love. Remember that. You're working, you're laboring, but you've left your first love. You know what the problem was? I'll kind of paraphrase it. You guys are so busy about the king's business that you've actually forgotten the king. How about we just take a tad bit more of our time to just be with him, to fellowship with him by being in his presence? Okay? Second thing, we've got to learn to trust God more. Okay, you believe in God, but you need to grow in that belief. Take the chances that come up that God challenges you with to grow to know him more. See verses 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me? And now look at verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father. So just stop for a second and think about that. Who was Jesus speaking to when he says this? When he tells you should believe in me? He's speaking to believers. They're the disciples. They're not, they're not atheists. He's not trying to convince them to get saved. They're already believing in him. They're disciples. They're followers of his. Believe in me that I'm in the Father. And in verse 11, the word believe is in a tense that means keep on believing. Keep it up. Let your faith grow. See, you just don't get saved by faith. You move on in the Christian life by faith, by learning to trust him more and more in deeper and deeper ways. That was Paul's desire when he writes to the Corinthians. He says this, our hope is that as your faith increases, in other words, our expectation is, our hope is that your faith will continue to grow. So here's the question. Do you find that your faith is growing, reaching new levels of depth and trust? The writer of Hebrews declared this, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Whoever comes to God must first believe that he is, and second is he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you think the seeking stops with your baptism, with taking communion, with accepting Christ? No, it's intended to continue to get deeper and grow. There was a skeptical physician who was treating a patient who was an absolutely fantastic a vibrant Christian. And the doctor confessed this to the patient after the surgery. He said, you know what? I, I, I believe I believe in God. <laughs> I, I guess I believe in Jesus. I just, I'm just not conscious I have any real doubts about that, but I, I don't know if I'm saved. 
I struggle with this whole faith thing. <coughs> the patient said, well, doctor, a week ago, I believed in you as a very skilled physician. I believed that if I got sick, you'd help me. But two days ago, I let you cut into me and do some things to me that I had no idea about. I did not understand. But I entrusted you with my life completely. So, doctor, I think you can see the difference between saying you believe and genuinely trusting. It's one thing to say you believe as a patient. If I get sick, that guy's going to help me. It's quite another to say, I'm sick. Help me. I surrender my life to you. I entrust my life to you. So here's the question. Is your faith growing or do you find it stagnant? Would you describe your faith as very, very alive or very much in need of life support? Now, get this. On one occasion, Jesus told the disciples, you guys just need to start forgiving people. You need to forgive people. Well, what do you mean by that? They asked. Well, if somebody offends you seven times in a day and they come to you and say, I repent of that, then you need to forgive them. Okay, that's pretty amazing. Imagine somebody walking up to you and smacking you in the face. Ever, that ever happened in our world? And then afterwards it goes, I'm sorry. You go, oh, oh, oh okay. I forgive you, don't, just don't do it again. 20 minutes later, bam, smacks you upside the head again. And then 20 minutes later says, I'm sorry. Now by that time, by number two, you're going to go, uh, okay, I'll forgive you this time, but seriously, don't ever do it again. Now, the third time he whacks you in the head and says you're sorry, says he's sorry, you're probably going to say, yeah, I, I'm not going for, to forgive you this time because I can tell that you're repenting, you're saying you're sorry, isn't really genuine. But you know what Jesus said? Even if he says, I'm sorry, seven times, forgive him. Now, you know when Jesus told this whole story to the disciples, you know what they said when Jesus said that? And you, I think you can relate to this. Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? You say, well, I don't think I've got that kind of faith. Jesus, you're going to have to help me on that one. I'm not doing really good on that particular aspect you just talked about. So increase our faith. That's not a bad thing to pray. Increase our faith. So bring in his presence and then growing to trust him more. And the third one. I think can help us. Bend to his word. Be in his word, but then bend to it. Right? The words I speak to you, I don't speak of my own authority, Jesus says, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus appeals to the words that they've heard him say over the last three and a half years. Sermon on the Mount, all this upper room discourse, all the magical, wonderful promises Jesus has made during that time. You know, whenever Jesus spoke and the Bible records the reaction of the crowd, sometimes... They're hostile, like they're religious leaders. Sometimes they're very comforted. I mean, no one was unmoved after the Sermon on the Mount. After he finished speaking, the crowd said they were amazed at this guy's teaching, for he spoke as somebody who had, act like he had authority. On another occasion, the elders send a bunch of people, like the, the temple police, to arrest Jesus. The police come back empty-handed, and the elders, the religious leaders, ask, well, where is he? We, we, we sent you to get him. And the police said, no one ever spoke like this guy. <laughs> oh, okay, well, I appreciate you saying that, but so where is he? We didn't, we didn't, you didn't bring him back? Whoa, he could, he could speak 
His words were so powerful. I mean, they just were unable to grab a hold of him. So Jesus is appealing to the words that he's spoken. You've heard what I said these last few years, he tells the disciples. You've heard and seen the power of those words. If you want to know God, then read his words. Read his book. If you want to know God, read what he says in his word. Gospel begins, John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. When you start reading his words, you're going to start knowing God. His personality is revealed in his words. His will is revealed in his words. What he hates is revealed in his words. What he loves is revealed in his words. How he works with people is revealed in his words. You're going to read stories about men and women in the words who encountered God. You'll read poetry about people who worshiped God. You'll read letters in the book who spoke to and spoke from God to people. And all of that's going to form for you a little bit of a profile, if you will, of who Jesus is. You'll come to know him through Scripture. That's why Martin Luther used to say, the Bible, it's alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. If you want to know word, the Word of God, if you want to know God, read His Word. I think that one of the strongest signs of a real child of God is that person's hunger to learn more about God. I've heard people say, well, I've read through the Bible once. That's it. I'm done. I'm just not really into that kind of stuff. I don't know about you, but I've, I've got to read it all the time. I want to know Him more. You read something and then you read it six months later, your life has changed. Your attitude has changed. You're something in your, is, is, you're going to see something in that passage that you didn't see the first time. It builds upon itself, peels you off like onion layers. Because you should, you should recognize that he speaks to us in it. It's living. George Gallup, <clears throat> you might be familiar with his name. He's a pollster, does a lot of surveys of what Americans think about things. He's made this uh, conclusion about... American Christians. What do he calls them? Biblical illiterates. I don't know why. He says only 40% of Americans who claim to be followers of Christ know that Jesus actually delivered the Sermon on the Mount. A majority of so-called Christians cannot even name the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said some people think it's Paul, George, Ringo, right, uh, he also says 70% of teenagers in our country have no clue why Easter is even celebrated. If you want to know God, you need to read his word, and then you need to bend to it. Finally, Jesus mentions this, beholding his works. Verse 11, believe in me that I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works. If you're having difficulty believing I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me, well, believe on account of what you've seen me do. Let's apply that because we're almost out of time. One of the ways to know God isn't just by getting information, but by seeing transformation. We see wherever Jesus is, he begins to change lives. <coughs> I've talked about her before, but Erica uh, was a human trafficker survivor, came to the surge for a few short weeks after uh, she was freed from uh, her trafficker. Uh, she heard the gospel here on the first Sunday here, she accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior like an alligator devours puppies or whatever. 
She was then whisked away by the authorities to keep her safe until she was able to testify at her trafficker's trial. I've been able to keep up her, with her and be friends with her as she's been moved here and there across the country, uh, but the transformation has been incredible. She posted this on her Facebook page on the 4th of January. She said this, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. And then as an encouragement to others, you may feel like you're about to break down, but realize that God can do the impossible and lead you to break through. God is in the business of working. He's in the business of doing things and accomplishing things. So why don't we find out what he's doing and look at it, observe it, marvel at it, and join in on it. If you want to know God, hang out with him. Want to know God, learn to trust him more. Let go, surrender more. You want to know God, read his words. You want to know God, check out what he's doing and join the effort. But let me just say, let your highest priority in life be to know him. I'll close with the story. Here's a carpenter, very good carpenter, getting older and decided, you know, I need to retire. I'm going to retire. So he went to the boss and said, I'm going to, I need to step away. I'm done. I quit. Boss says, man, I hate to lose you. You're, you're such a gifted craftsman. So do me one favor before you go. Would you do that? He goes, okay, sure. He goes, I want you to just build me one more house, one more house. He goes, okay, I'll do it. This is his last house. His heart wasn't really in it. He just kind of threw it together. It's all done. The boss walks up with the front door keys and said, I'm giving you this house. Not even knowing how he built it. I'm giving you this house. You've been so good. You've worked so hard. It's my gift to you. I'm letting you have this house free of charge for you to live in. Well, now the guy's realizing, man, if I'd known that was coming, I would have built it very differently. I'd have used better materials. I'd use better skilled craftsmanship. Look, you and I are building our lives one choice, one day at a time. How are you doing with that? How are you building that? What are your priorities? Is knowing God up there on the list? Is it being conformed to his image? Is it having the life of Christ pour through you out into the world around you? To build your life, you do want to do it one day at a time. My challenge is let's, let's know God better every day. You'll never regret it. God, we pray that you might be known by us above all else. That it would be our passion to know you. As Jesus cried out in his own prayer that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I pray for those of us who know you already that we would not be content to stay stagnant, that we would strive to know you more, deeper, challenge us in ways that surprise us. Um, my experience with you is that you, you don't let us stay where we are. You want to move us forward. We haven't arrived. We have not arrived. None of us have arrived. There's always more you want to chip away, more you want to see us do. You want us to be fruitful, so we pray that we would surrender to you and let that happen. And maybe with these tools that we've talked about today, you can make that happen, that you would be pleased with us as good and faithful servants. 
We ask all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.